You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today I'm with Jack Slingerland, who is running Express and Node in production to help power a platform that allows WordPress developers to easily distribute and keep tabs on their plugins and themes. Jack, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. It's nice to be here. Yeah, no problem. So do you want to start off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about the app that we're going to go over today? Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Jack Slingerland. I'm the founder and sole proprietor of kernel.us. It is uh, It does a lot of things, but the main thing it does is deliver private updates to WordPress plugins and themes. Um, the meat and potatoes of it are all written in Node.js, uh, backed by a Mongo database and a Redis cache, and it's hosted on DigitalOcean. So, I mean, that's the, that's the high level. So we can dive in wherever you want. Oh, yeah. So let's begin with uh, how long it's been running in production for. Yeah, so I believe uh, it start, I got it into production in January or February of 2015. So at this point, about five years. Wow. So in that five years, like what type of scale are we talking about here when it comes to traffic, like metrics and things? Yeah. So when I when I started Kernel, um, I had like hardly any traffic, as you would expect when you start a product. Um, I think my first month I was getting like maybe 2,000 requests a day, so nothing serious. Um, and then as you know, word spread and people kind of got on board, it went from 2,000 a month to... 10,000 a month to 100,000 a month to a million a month. And then eventually, like right now, I do two and a half million requests a day. So oh, wow. yeah, so it's grown It's grown quite a bit. I would say so. And it's funny too, as like a developer who's into the scene, you know, like checking Hacker News and stuff like that, you kind of get this impression that like, oh, WordPress is dead and no one's using it. But then at the same time, it's like, well, almost everyone is using it. Yeah, that and that's the thing too. Like the WordPress market is absolutely giant. Like if you... If you have a good product to sell, you can you can make a lot of money in the WordPress ecosystem. Um, and what I do is kind of like the gold rush thing. Like I'm not going after the gold. I'm selling pick pickaxes and and blue jeans. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's a, a really good quote. I remember that one. But uh, on that topic, then, um, what was your motivation for using Express and Node? Like instead of just making the site itself even with WordPress, or is that just not possible? Um, I, I think it would be possible, but I don't think it made a whole lot of sense for what I wanted to do. Like I, I had a couple motivations. So when I started this, I, w- I was looking for a side project. I needed something to you know tickle my interest and learn some things. Um, the front end is written in Angular one, and I already knew that, so I let that be my front end and. Um, I heard about this concept called innovation tokens a while ago, and um, at a high level, it says that you can on any project you're allowed to use two innovation tokens. After that, use boring technology. So um, I spent my innovation tokens on Mongo and Express. Um, I already knew Node for the most part. Um, I already knew JavaScript well already knew Angular, but I did want to learn more about Express, so that's why I used Express, and then I used Mongo for the same reason. Like, at the time, document-oriented stores were, it looked like they were going to stick around for a while, and that seems to held true, so I thought I should learn more about them, and that, I mean, (laughs) I wish I had better reasons for my tech choices there, but really it's just, I wanted to try something new. Right. 
I have not heard the term innovation token, but it is an idea that I think like people sort of kind of put together, but they don't describe it like that. And definitely good to stick by. But when it came to Express, was it kind of just like flipping a coin when it comes to picking that of the JavaScript frameworks available? Because I know there's like, well, I'm not really super into Node, but I know there's like Koa and Happy and all these other ones. Yeah, yeah, it really was. I, I picked the framework in the JS ecosystem that had the most adoption, and it was expressed by Miles. Um, I mean, I probably could have gone with Koa at that time as well, but I just didn't know enough about the ecosystem to make that choice. Right, and so far so good. Over the five years, it's been pleasant development experience? Yeah, it, it really has. I mean, Express is a micro framework so it doesn't give you it doesn't give you a lot it gives you like routing basically and then you have to you know bring the rest with you through npm packages and things like that but um, overall express has never been a bottleneck for me um, it's always been other things that have caused problems like node itself is extremely fast as long as you um, are sane with you know how you use it and um, Express is the same way, like it's very, very quick to respond, it runs on the node event loop, so you don't get a lot of like blocking actions, and overall it's, it's been a really great experience. Um, I think in most new projects where I need a, a back-end server, Express is my, my go-to. Nice. Yeah. In a weird way, I'm kind of happy to see that Express is still being used so often out in the wild, because I remember looking at Node like way, way back in like the 0 .04 days, like shortly after it was kind of announced. And there was this one guy, uh, TJ Holloway Chuck. Do, do you know that name? The name sounds super familiar, but I, I can't remember much else. <laughs> uh, he was the uh, original author of Express. And yeah, the guy was like a complete monster in the JavaScript community. Like he released like, I don't know, like 50 JavaScript libraries, a second legend has it. But uh, it's nice to see that he doesn't work with it anymore, but it's nice to see that his work is still living on with other maintainers. Yeah, and it, it really is. Like, it's it's constantly updated. Um, you know, I'd say the the feature set for Express is, is static at this point, but, um, you know, there's always little tweaks coming out for, like, performance or bugs or, you know, security holes or anything like that. So it's, it's very much actively maintained. Right. So are you using uh, ES6 JavaScript on the back end? Yeah, so kernel is actually a couple microservices. Like as it grew, it made sense to break things out. Um, on the main kernel, I'm gonna call it a monolith. It's not really, it's mostly just an API, but on the main kernel service, it is ES6 JavaScript. So it's using, um, you know, async await for any kind of like asynchronous stuff. Um, it's well-tested, has a ton of, tests, unit, and integration. But yeah, ES6 all the way. Uh, I like the block scoping of variables, so like constant let, and definitely the like shorthand syntax, like arrow functions and spread operators and all that. Yeah, there's some good times in the JavaScript world where it's like this versus like let this equals underscore this and fat arrows. <laughs> yeah, like I, I remember when I first started doing JavaScript back in 2010, like the 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 pattern of choice was the revealing module pattern. So like you'd, you'd close over a function and then you'd assign this to like self or that and then return it as, as kind of like your public interface for your, your object. And it was just terrible. I'm so, I'm so glad we're past that. Yeah, it's definitely like, I actually do not mind writing much JavaScript now. So that's always a good thing. Um, as for the code base itself, do you know like roughly like the size of the code base? I mean, you don't have to go super specific, but... Oh, gosh, I, I wish I knew. 
I at this point I'd say probably more than a hundred thousand lines. Like there's a there's a lot of code in there now. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. So then maybe then it, it would be a good idea to maybe talk a little bit more about the services that kernel provides like if you're a wordpress developer like what type of features that does your application handle yeah so let's talk about like the core service first so the main thing that people come to kernel for is uh plugin and theme updates so if you are a if you're like a wordpress plugin or theme author if you want your plugin or theme to like have automatic updates to it it needs to be in the wordpress uh repository now, if you're trying to sell your plugin or theme, it can't go in there because it's probably not GPL licensed. WordPress is very opinionated on the stuff that goes into their main repository. Um, so that that is the service that Kernel provides. So like you, your premium plugins and themes can have private updates via Kernel. It works seamlessly with the WordPress updater. It appears as just a normal update as a plugin or theme you installed from the WordPress repo does. So that's like that's the main service. Um, and as people got into kernel, you know, I started thinking about other things that they might like. And I also had a bunch of customer feedback and, um, you know, wading through that and figuring out what worked. The, the next thing that came up was what if I could just push my, a new version of my plugin out with Git. So like I'm in, I'm in my editor, I'm making changes, and I'm ready to deploy it. What if I just like bump the version number and do git push, and then kernel sees the push, packages it up, and then releases the update for me? So that's the that's the next big feature that people like. They can connect their plugins and themes to their, Word, their git repo, and then we'll automatically build it for them. Nice. So then what you're saying is, as an end user of someone who would install one of your customers' plugins, there's nothing different that they would need to do? Correct, yeah. It looks exactly the same as a regular WordPress plugin or theme installed from the main repository. Um, the big difference is just for developer happiness uh, for the, the plugin or theme author. They can push to build and then forget about it. They don't have to worry. Right. Yeah, that sounds pretty awesome if you can get a deployment set up like that. So you mentioned the code base, you know, probably in the neighborhood of like 100,000 lines of code. Is that code that you've written over the last five years by yourself? Yeah, yeah. It's it's all been me all by myself. Um, that includes like all of the front end interface, all of the all of the back end services. Um, and that's it's a lot of it's a lot of code, but kernel does a lot of things. Like it's not just the plugin updates and the like push to build functionality. There's, there's license management in there for your plugins. So like if someone, someone purchases your product, you can limit how many updates they receive with uh, license management. Um, there's analytics. So, you know, we have two and a half million requests coming into kernel every single day and WordPress sends a bunch of data with those requests when you're, when it's looking for updates. So um, we can do a bunch of neat analytics around, um, you know, like what PHP versions are your customers using? What versions of your plugin are customers using? Um, what domains have your plugins installed? You know, do you see any domains that it really shouldn't be there? Like they stole it. You know, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of, a lot of cool stuff. Um, or like load testing, like WordPress specific load testing is the most recent feature. So um, th that 100,000 represents a lot of, features. Yeah, I mean, we're not going to really get too deep in the woods there, but I bet if we did, like there's probably like, I don't know, like a hundred 
plus general like web development features that are a part of your app, like uploading files and yeah, all sorts of crazy stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it, it goes down the rabbit hole, right? Like billing and all that. So <laughs> yeah, oh, we'll definitely get to billing in due time. Um, but as for this code, is it all just living in, in one Git repo? Uh, no. So the, the main kernel app, well, okay. So everything except analytics and load testing lives in one repository. So like the main kernel app, like you go to kernel.us and that is the main app. So that's the, everything is in a single repo there. So like the front end and the back end. Now it is a, it is a single page app. So, um, they aren't, it isn't very monolithic. Like it is a, it has a strict like API driven application. Um, the other two repos are for analytics. Um, it made sense to break that out as its own microservice. And then the um, load testing backend made sense to have as its own repository as well. Right. So was that something you just grew into eventually to decide to break those up into their separate services? Yeah, it, it was. When I realized that there wasn't much code that was worth sharing for those services with the main app, I thought, okay, now's the opportunity for me to to break this out and not clutter the main repository anymore. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I find like when you try to start with microservices from day one, it becomes very tricky because it's like you don't even know what you want to break out. Yeah, it. it I, I've seen that lead a lot of people down a bad path. Like in, in my opinion, if you want to actually deliver something um, and you don't know and you know that you're just starting out so you don't have to worry about scale, like just start with a with a monolith and break it out as you need to. It's because it's there's a lot less mental overhead working in a monolith than there is working in a like series of microservices and orchestrating communication between them and all that. Yeah. And I think your app is a great example of, well, it's not strictly a monolith because you have broken things out, but a huge majority of it is. And uh, it seems to be working out quite well. Yeah, and I, I try to if I if I write new services now, I try to break them out as their own thing where it makes sense. Like the the newest thing I'm working on, and no one knows about this now except you, is a uh, WordPress site health monitor. So think of it kind of like Pingdom, except it combines like response time, time to first byte, and then information from your WordPress install. So like. CPU usage, memory, etc., along with uh, changes to plugin and theme versions. So if you see like a performance hit um, at a certain point in time, you can see what caused that. Maybe it was you're out of memory, maybe it was you're out of CPU, or maybe you know a new version of a plugin came out and it is tanking your performance. So like that, that's one of the new things that I was like, that makes sense to be its own service as well. Right. Yeah, and that thing is going to be ultimately rolled into the kernel offering, right? Like if you're a subscriber of your platform, that's something you'll just get as a feature at some point? Yeah, correct. It's just a, it's a value add right on top of your current subscription. Very cool. Because, yeah, that monitoring stuff like will really save you in the end. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's that, that was my thinking, too. Like I'm, I'm part of a WordPress hosting group on Facebook, and so many times you see people post in there, and they're saying... Anybody know why my site would have poor performance X, Y, Z? And the answers are always, you know, are you out of RAM? How's your CPU usage? Are you out of disk space? Where any new plugins installed? And um, just being giving people the opportunity to see that information in, in one spot and, and see those issues as they crop up seems important. So I'm going to give it a shot. Yeah, no, sounds like it will be uh, a smashing success. I sure hope so. Now, as for... 
the Node app itself. You said, you know, you wanted to use Angular on the front end because you just knew that and you were out of tokens to pick new stuff. Uh, did you ever toy around with the idea of maybe just going server render templates instead of Angular? Um, you know, I did. Uh, at, at the time, I was actually a Python and Django developer, and I thought I could build this thing in Django in like an hour, you know, <laughs> like Django's batteries included. It gives yeah. you everything. But I wouldn't have learned anything. So like it was a learning project and I was I wanted to learn more about, um, you know, Express and Mongo. So I went with that and just went the, the SPA route. Right. So speaking of, you know, Mongo and Node, like, do you want to just go into maybe a little bit more about what you're using for your tech stack or is that basically it? Um, yeah, I can give you a, a little breakdown. I actually wrote this down before we started because it's been a while and I wanted to make sure I caught all the important parts. Um, so at a, at a high level kernel, the main app is AngularJS uh, and then the back end is written in Node 12, which talks to Mongo for the main data store. Um, I also use Redis as a cache. So, um, you know, when you're getting 25-ish requests a second um, with bursts of up to 100, it's nice to have a cache so that you don't get like thundering herd problems. Um, and then on some of the other services, they're, it's, they're also Node, but they're written in TypeScript, which um, I've come to like a lot just because as I, as I get older, I appreciate strict typing a lot more. Um, and then I also have Postgres for the analytics service and the load testing service. And that's mostly the tech stack. Interesting. Yeah, no, I am definitely a fan of, of static typing when you can get it. Do you think that long run you might start to refactor some of your code to use TypeScript in the, in the main code base? Uh, I th it's on my backlog, let's say that, but I don't know if it will actually happen. Like since it's, it's, a, since it's just me working on this, I don't work on it full time. Like I have a full time job. Um, and I also have a toddler. It is it is hard to find time to do that sort of refactoring because it would be to to my customers it would be transparent and they really wouldn't see much gain in it. Especially since I have such a robust testing suite already, um, so I, I wouldn't see it, they wouldn't see like any gain from the the strict typing. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, when you have those features that nobody sees, but it helps your code base, it's like, well, there's always something else that you could do that is customer facing. Yeah, it's 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 really hard to justify. Like my heart of hearts wants to do it, but business hat Jack can't can't justify it. <laughs> right. That's pretty cool though, man, that you were able to roll this whole thing together as what sounds to me like basically like like a side gig, like a couple hours after work, maybe here or there, that type of deal. Yeah, and and that's really it. Um, I, I I did the most. I did the vast majority of work on this before I had my son. So that's that's when I got a lot of the work done. But, um, you know, after that, like he would get up in the middle of the night and, you know, my wife and I would get up to take care of him and then he'd go back to bed and she'd go back to bed and I'd be not tired anymore. So, you know, I would try to, you know, turn my brain off and that wouldn't work. So I'd work on kernel for a while or, you know, maybe I get up early in the morning, which I do sometimes. So. Yeah, just whenever I have a minute, I, I do work on it, and I make sure that I know exactly what I'm going to do next when I sit down. Otherwise, I would make, make no progress at all. Right, so I guess you have like maybe like some type of to-do thing that you write out the previous day? Yeah, I have, a, I have a Trello board that I've been using for as long as Kernel's been around, um, and it has, it has like four columns on it. It has one column for just like the backlog of features and ideas and bugs, 
um, another column for like blog posts ideas and then the other one is like what am I doing this month and those those cards are pretty well fleshed out so that I know what to do and then like the in progress column so I have those cards will all have like checklists on them for like what I'm doing now what's next um, when I before I close my laptop at night or whenever I'm working on it I'll leave a leave a to-do note for myself in the code so I know where to start again when I when I catch back up um, I, I think that my my superpower that I've learned since having a toddler is context switching uh, like I can go from you know playing trains with him one minute to three minutes later like deep in the weeds on some kernel stuff so I I find that to be very helpful yeah that is for sure a superpower in this industry <laughs> Because there's always those people talking and it's like, well, you know, you go to work or whatever at a full-time job and you have these meetups or meetings during the day and it's like you get like a half an hour of productive work because it takes like an hour to ramp up in between. Yeah, and like I, I get it. Like I'm actually a, I'm a software engineering manager, so I manage two te- three teams of engineers and there are people on my team that are like that. They need that ramp up time to, you know, really get into the zone so they can write good code and solve good problems, but... Um, for me, I've kind of like trained that out of myself. I don't need it quite as much anymore. So that it, otherwise I probably wouldn't have been nearly as successful with kernel as I am. Yep. So with kernel, is this something that you would like to do full time at some point or no? Oh, I would love to do this full time. Uh, right now it doesn't make enough money for me to do that, especially having, you know, a wife and a kid and needing to have health insurance and all that nonsense. But someday maybe I hope. Yeah. Yeah. Let's not get into health insurance in this podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah. We'll, we'll leave that one for something else. <laughs> but uh, you mentioned using a Trello board. So maybe we can talk a little bit more about other SaaS tools that you might be using. Yeah, sure. So the, uh, let me think for a second. The, the big three tools that I use are Trello, just to keep myself organized. Um, DigitalOcean, that's where I'm hosted and we can dive into that in a bit. Um, and then Stripe. I use Stripe for payment processing. And I think that's it. I think actually I use Pusher for a, one little real time thingy on the homepage, but nothing serious. So, what does that do for uh, Pusher with the WebSocket setup? Um, basically, whenever a download happens on kernel, like someone sees an update and they click the, down, the update button in WordPress, it sends a little like increment event to pusher and then the whole the uh homepage picks that up and it increments a counter like it, it's really cheesy i just wanted to play with pusher and i kept it in because it was simple and fun yeah yeah i mean you say it's kind of cheesy but like as an end user i think those things are like really cool because yeah it just shows like the amount of like little touches that you put into your app to make it a little bit nicer yeah and i mean it is definitely a a labor of love in in a lot of places so i try and i try and delight my customers as much as possible yeah so maybe one SaaS tool that possibly you skipped over but maybe not is like sending email out oh yeah i absolutely did skip that um i use sendgrid for that that is i've used them for i don't know as long as i've done kernel and it's just a, it's been a really good experience. And especially as the company has matured, their APIs have gotten better, their web interface has gotten better. Um, and I've found that they've been pretty reliable for me. Right. Yeah. They're definitely a great service. I've used them in the past as well. Now, when it comes to Stripe, 
Are you using the new APIs to deal with uh, SCA and other EU requirements? <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> I I have not I have not upgraded my my Stripe API since 2016, so I'm I'm still pinned to a fairly old version of it. Do you have a lot of customers in uh, European countries or now? Um, not too many, maybe a small handful, um, but a vast majority of my customers are in the U.S. Right. Yeah, I just had a show the other week with someone where we were going over the pain points of making that upgrade. Like, that is one of those things where I guess, like, it is sort of something that your customers won't notice unless they happen to be, you know, in the EU and require that authentication. But, yeah, it's like a soul-draining experience to get that set up. Yeah, yeah. I. Uh, it's not something that really uh, <laughs> brings me joy to do. Um, the one thing that I did do recently, though, was I um, I built in checkout JS for Stripe for like accepting credit cards. So um, that seems to have put a lot of people's minds at ease around like actually accepting credit cards and things like that because um, they they never touch kernel at all. It just goes all through Stripe. Yeah, yeah, that's their fairly new offering, right? Yes, pretty cool. So you're dealing with you know substantial amount of traffic right let's be real here it's like 50 60 70 million requests a month maybe yeah how are you dealing with all of the logs generated from that traffic uh well it not i mean i don't use them that well so i i use oh another service i forgot i use sentry for error reporting um so whenever like an exception happens sentry picks it up and then i can do things with it um i find that to be far more robust than just like splunking through logs um but i don't really i don't really maintain many logs and i really have not had the need to use them so on the the kernel app servers the ones that run node.js uh kernel is kept up by pm2 which is a it's like a process monitor for node and it has logs and like i can I can like look through those logs if I need to, but they rotate out pretty quickly. Like I only hold on to them for like a day or two. Um, and then at the at the load balancer, I used to use Nginx for a load balancer, but I got tired of maintaining it. Um, but when I had Nginx as a load balancer, I kept I kept those logs too, but they rotated out fairly quickly. Like I just I haven't had much need just because Sentry has done a great job of capturing my errors and exceptions for me. Right. Yeah, that makes total sense. Now, speaking of load balancers and Nginx, uh, what did you end up swapping it out for? Um, I'm actually using a managed load balancer from DigitalOcean. Um, it was like 10 bucks a month, so it was similar cost to like my Nginx setup. Like I had I had two two Nginx droplets and a floating IP between them that I could like swap traffic when I need to do maintenance on one or the other. Um, but now I can just use the load balancer from DigitalOcean and not have to worry about it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm a huge, huge fan of DigitalOcean. I'm a really, I'm really happy to see them expanding out their offerings besides just you know like a VPS. Yeah, it would it would make me really happy if they had like a managed Mongo database too. <laughs> yeah, maybe in due time. Didn't they just release the Postgres one? Like I don't know, a couple of months ago. Yeah, they did. And I think if like I think if my main app was in Postgres, I probably would use that. Right. So for now, are you just going self-hosted Postgres or? Yeah, I have, I have, uh, each of the services that use Postgres have their own, um, Postgres instance on the box. Like it's, it's very kind of old school. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, PM2 and now you say old school. I mean, 
is it safe to say that you're not using Docker anywhere? That's correct. Yeah. Like I've, I've used, I've used Docker at work quite a bit, but, um, I don't know. I just didn't find the need for it. Like I like doing the sysadmin stuff. Um, it's something that I've done for, you know, a long time and I like flexing that muscle. So I don't mind maintaining a few boxes on DigitalOcean. Yeah. It's one of those things like I'm in the same boat as you. Well, in that, like I actually, I, I do like Docker a lot, but like flexing that sysadmin muscle like that's something i actually enjoy like i like the op side of things yeah it's um it's fun like day to day i don't get to do that you know but i've I've run my own servers since gosh i don't know since like 2002 so i i like to continue to do that when possible were you one of like the original uh neck beards like using gentoo and stuff like that oh i never got that deep into the well but um i think my first uh, my first Linux distribution was Mandriva back in 2004 or something like that. So um, I've been around the block. You know, I used uh, Ubuntu when it first came out, and I put it on my laptop as soon as I could because it had good Wi-Fi support. So, um, you know, I've, I've tried to keep those muscles fresh and working. Right. Now, speaking of some... Uh, Ubuntu stuff. Uh, what distro are you running on the servers? Um, let's see. So I run Ubuntu 18.04, I believe. It's the LTS version. Um, I don't try and keep up to date with whatever the new hotness is. I don't have the time for that. But um, yeah, I try and always run LTS versions of any software that I can, just so I don't have to go through the effort of upgrading more than you know once every year or two. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely the same way when it comes to server stuff. Now, but there is a new LTS coming out, I think, in a couple of months. Uh, yes, it should be coming out in a couple months. And I do plan on upgrading to that this year sometime because I don't want to get left too far behind. Yeah. So what do you think the upgrade process for something like that would be for you? Um, honestly, I'll probably just rebuild the boxes from the ground up. <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a couple other you know, things that I'd like to do, like get rid of scripts that I don't need on those boxes anymore, just like little cruft that builds up over time. Um, and the boxes do a pretty good job of doing one thing and one thing only. So building them back up is not difficult for me. Right. So this will be one of those cases where your brand new box gets spinned up and then you'll just use uh, DigitalOcean's load balancer to put traffic to it when it's ready. Yep. That's basically it. <laughs> So how many how many actual web servers do you run? So the ones that receive all the traffic, only two. And what's the specs on those? Um, they have one gig of RAM and one vCPU. That's crazy. That's crazy, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's really kind of amazing that a you know a, sh- a shared vCPU setup can handle that sort of traffic. Um, but it's it's everything's heavily cached. Everything is read heavy, so. And nothing is CPU bound, so it's it's pretty it's a fairly like simple workload, even though it is pretty high, uh, pretty high volume. Yeah, many many millions of requests per month is definitely high, and it's like, yeah, you are using you know a third party service for the database, but it's still like the machine is doing work. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it it is like I've I had three app servers for a while, but I found that like they were underutilized, like they were floating at like. 20% usage and I thought I don't really need three of these I have enough uh, redundance with two and I'm just wasting money that I could put towards something else so um, yeah it's it's surprisingly small the amount of hardware that kernel has <laughs> yep 
So now, you know, you mentioned you're using Dio's load balancer. What about serving static files? How do you do that? Uh, the bad way. <laughs> um, so when I had when I had Nginx, I was using Nginx to serve those directly. Um, so they never, you know, proxied back through to the, the node server. But right now, um, ever since I moved to the load balancer, I've the DigitalOcean one, I have had a card on my backlog to push all of my static assets to S3, but I just haven't. So right now, um, when you request like style.css, it hits the load balancer and then it hits express and express serves that. I know it's really naughty, but um, it, <laughs> it serves my purpose so far. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like on paper, it's naughty, but at the same time, it's like, look at the traffic you're serving and doing that and it's fine. Yeah. And, and I guess the, the other thing too is like, the amount of customers I have is like a fraction of a fraction of the total traffic that I receive, right? Like the 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 amount of traffic I get is my customers' customers. So like the the people actually seeing like static assets are the people logging into Kernel's interface, and to them, you know, I mean, to them, like there's you know a hundred of them, it's not a big deal, and it's still performant. If I was getting millions of people logging into the interface, then I would be the the card to move things to S3 would move up my backlog real fast. Yeah, no, that that's a really good point. So yeah, not dealing with too many assets on your end, but it's still good. Yeah, and I guess the there is one static asset that does get a lot of traffic. Um, so when a customer uh, posts an update to their plugin, um, there's there's kind of a fanning problem where if that customer has like thousands upon thousands of customers. All of them, it's possible that all of them try and download the update at the same time. <laughs> um, now that would actually crash uh, my node process because it'd have to it'd have to hold like file descriptors and connections open for so long. Um, so I learned early on that those need to be served out of S3. So I do have the actual files that get downloaded um, for updates served out of S3. Okay. Yeah, definitely a good idea. Have you compared that a little bit with uh, DigitalOcean Spaces or no? Yeah, so I, I would actually like to do that and I would save money, but I keep getting notifications that DigitalOcean Spaces are down <laughs> um, for you know Region X or Region Y or they're having issues with it. And I never get those about AWS S3. So I'm, I don't know, I think I'm going to let Spaces bake a little bit more before I make the move. Yeah, I feel you. I'm the same exact way. It's like, I want to use it so bad, but I, all I hear are like horror stories about it. Yeah. And I mean, my customers don't care where their files hosted and AWS is cheap. I mean, I only, I pay like 11 or 12 bucks a month for, you know, the, the, the bandwidth in and out of S3 for the, all the, for all those files. So it's not a huge deal. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe there's like a tiny, tiny win or maybe a larger win, depending on how you think about it. But it's like if you go the DO spaces route, you do get that free CDN on top of it as well. Yeah. And that that would be nice because, you know, my customers, customers are all over the world. They could be they could be in the U.S. They could be in India. And having that having that CDN would be would be nice. But um, I'm hesitant just because of the issues I see with spaces. Like if I can go for, if, if I can see a four month window where spaces doesn't have issues, I'll make the move. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good plan. Cause it's really risky to, to base your business on something like that. Yeah. And you know, the rest of DigitalOcean has been rock solid for me. So I also don't want, I, I wouldn't want my experience with spaces to like sour my, my opinion of them. 
Yeah, it's so funny. Like, I think the same way. Like, they've been so, so good since I've been using them for, like, I don't know how long. It's been five years or something. Like, everything has been superb except spaces. Yeah, it, it's really, it's really kind of interesting. Like, I, I use they, I use them to manage my, um, my DNS. They, and just like everything, I use their like software cloud firewall to, you know, block off access to machines. The, the load testing service that Kernel has actually uses the DigitalOcean API to like dynamically spin up droplets to create the load generators. You know, like it, I, I use DigitalOcean pretty extensively but man space is just i'm not confident <laughs> maybe we should rewind a little bit and talk a little bit more about how you're using dio's load balancers like or maybe even we can rewind a little bit even further and just talk about like your deployment process maybe do you want to just start us off like how does code get from your dev box to you know running running in production yeah so um i don't have anything continuously deployed i feel like i should but i just it's only me, so there's not a ton of value in it. But what I do have is like a one like button press deploy. Like every one of my services, I can run npm de- run deploy, and it will deploy out to all the production boxes. So the the main kernel app, if I when I run that, it start it kicks off all the tests. If they pass, um, it runs a grunt process that packages up all of the static assets and then uh, pushes them out to the boxes, and then after that, it will um, push, or I'm sorry, it'll push the like the changes to get push the static assets out, and then basically SSH into the box and pull changes and reload the the service. So that's that's the high level for deployment. Like I, it's all automated, but it doesn't deploy automatically. Right now, in that case, when you say the script SSHs into the server to deploy it. Do you have it then set up to where if you need to deploy on two servers, it does it for both of them? Yeah, there's a, it, there's like a, I basically have an array in my uh, deployment script that I can just add and remove servers from and it will, you know, deploy to however many servers I want. And it does it, it does it concurrently. So they all, they all get the code at the same time. I don't do like blue green or anything like that. It's easy enough for me to roll back if I need to. Right. How does that work in practice, though? If let, let's say you have two servers running and you do a code deploy, do you end up having downtime for a little bit of time while both of those restart like concurrently? No, I don't. So um, PM2 has this nice thing called graceful reload. Um, so I run two. I'm not. You're not supposed to do this, but I do it anyway, and I'm fine. Um, I run two node processes per box, um, and what PM2 can do is run a graceful reload where it brings down one node process on the box, swaps out the new code, brings it back up, and then brings down the other node process, swaps out the code, and brings it back up. So I never have downtime when I deploy. Wow, that's uh, a very big advantage of using PM2. Yeah, it, it's really, it's huge. It, it's, one of the, it's one of the main reasons I do. Like I could use, um, I don't know, some like more like lower level system thing to keep the application up or PM2 and it can give me all those sweet, um, you know, swapping the processes in and out for me. Yeah. Cause I was about to go over like, you know, how do you, how do you like update the load balancer and do all this other stuff, but it's all handled locally on the one instance. Yep. Never have, never have to worry about it. And that's, that's definitely part of like the, the keeping it simple. Um, you know, I wouldn't want to have to like worry about, um, keeping like salt scripts up to date or puppet or anything like that, trying to, you know, swap instances in and out of the load balancer. Like kernel's not complicated enough for that. 
Yeah. And it is a big difference, I think. If you are if you put yourself into into a position where you can just deploy your application without having to worry about, oh well, there's four seconds of downtime, you know, it's a big benefit. Yeah, and the, one of the things that I had to make sure with kernel is I wanted it to be available all the time. My my main competitor when I launched would have like hours of downtime and people would get really frustrated because like their customers call them. They're like, what the hell is going on? Why is my website not loading? Because your WordPress plugin is broken. Um, so like I, one of the things I set out to do was make sure kernel is never down. And so far I've done a pretty good job of that, but getting deployments right was, was big. Yeah. So, um, when it comes to deploying things like secrets, do they just go from your dev box straight to the server? Then there's no like intermediate using like GitHub or something or no? Correct. Yeah. They just go, they go straight to the server and they get, uh, put in the environment, uh, variables there. So, um, pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, maybe not the best practices, but it's, it's worked so far. Yeah. I mean, I think as long as those environment or those secret values don't end up in like version control, then, you know, how they get on the server and how they're run is, you know, at some point they need to be decrypted, like living on the machine. Yeah, exactly. Like it, at some point somewhere, the, the, the variable will be out in the open on the machine for, for the application to read. So, you know, it's, it can either be sooner or later or simple or harder. And I chose, you know, soon and simple <laughs> for what I do. Yeah. So have you ever given any foresight to like, you know, like what would happen if you were to introduce maybe a second developer on the team like that? It seems like that would change your deploy process maybe a little bit. Right. Or no. Um, yeah, it definitely would. So I've, I've thought about that and I've kind of like went down that road a little bit trying to get to like continuous deployment. Um, most of kernels code is hosted on Bitbucket and I've started using their um, it's called pipelines, I believe. Uh, to kind of like build, to run the tests automatically. And I think that it wouldn't be a huge stretch to extend that to deploy things automatically as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I can't go into super details here and I don't want to go too deep anyways, but I just set that up for a client recently with like the deployment aspect and it wasn't too bad at all. Yeah. I mean, it took me maybe like uh, an hour or two to get the the tests running correctly. Um, and I once I figured out like the syntax and all the you know, the configuration file and all that. So I, I can't imagine it'd be too bad. And it seems pretty slick. It works It works when I need it to, so. Yeah. So I guess you got to experience that, that fun song and dance where it was like you just make these git commits like trying to fix CI, maybe fix CI, fix CI. Whip, whip. <laughs> Didn't fix CI. Yeah, that's fun. So now that your application is up and running, it's deployed, there's no downtime, which is awesome. What have you done for like planning for disasters and like unexpected events and things like that? Uh, yeah. So that's that's the hard part, right? Like, cur- like the amount of money I make on kernel is not such that I can have like super super a super like redundant setup for like disaster recovery. Um, but what I do have is um, you know daily backups of all customer data. So like if in the event that my box went belly up, you know, I could restore everything. Um, I have a, I have a playbook for like building out new boxes so that if I need to, I could, I could build them out quickly. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, if there's like a networking issue or digital oceans, one of like the hypervisors is flaky. Um, you know, I can always like drop the bad node out of the load balancer and kernel will still be fine. 
Um, but that's I can't really I can't really afford to do like good disaster recovery. I can just do um, basically daily backups and make sure that people's data stays in good shape if things go sideways. Right now, you mentioned playbooks. Is that just like your own? definition of what a playbook is like that's not an ansible playbook right no it is not an ansible playbook it's it's literally a text file that is like step by step like these are exactly all of the things and app get commands you need to um, rebuild a box yeah so i try not to make this podcast like me sitting in an ivory tower like judging my guests but if you have a playbook like that like what would stop you from using a tool like ansible to do that automatically just to set your box up uh mostly time and effort like i've i've used ansible a little bit but not enough to not enough to know like how to do it correctly um and it, it kind of goes back to like the refactoring node in the typescript reason like i don't know if my customers benefit enough for me setting that up to justify the time investment yeah i think it's probably one of those things right where it's like if you ever set up a box and something went drastically wrong and it affected you and like your customers, maybe then you would react to that by trying to maybe automate that, right? Yeah, like I, I it would have to give me like significant heartburn to do it. Um, yeah. Like I don't set up boxes enough for me to automate it. <laughs> yeah, that makes total sense. Now, you know, daily backups or whatever is totally fine, I think. But when it comes to things like maybe your site going down like do you have ways to get alerted if that were to happen yeah i um i use pingdom and uh all of the the monitoring resolution is like one per minute so when if when or if kernel goes down i know right away and generally kernel doesn't go down but you know sometimes things happen and it becomes unavailable and you know as soon as i see that i jump on and figure out if it's something within my control or not right do you have any maybe some more stories of going down in the past <laughs> I, I think my favorite uh horror story is uh so when i first started kernel everything was on um one box and it was a very under provisioned box and my plan was as i grow i would just you know continually you know scale vertically until i couldn't anymore and then you know break things out into their own services um which i think is in general a pretty good plan but uh what i didn't realize at the time was that apache i was using apache as my proxy was going to um, rear its ugly head so i was my wife and i were in florida on vacation and we were driving back to north carolina which is like a you know 10 hour drive and i started getting these alerts saying that kernel's down kernel's down i'm like what's going on um and we were driving in like you know on a freeway so i was like all right uh honey i'm gonna need you to drive while i'm on my laptop tethered to my phone trying to figure out what the heck's going on and um i found out after much 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 problems that um apache was just going belly up after a certain amount of time because i had a new customer signed up that had a really big customer base and it had like tripled or quadrupled my traffic um so like in the car driving along the freeway coming back to north carolina I made the decision to switch out to Nginx because I'd heard it was more performant and I didn't really have any better thing to do because I tried increasing the capacity of the box and it didn't change anything. Um, so in, in the car, I swapped Nginx out as my proxy and that solved the problem. But um, if I knew more about Apache, that probably wouldn't have been necessary, but I didn't. So <laughs> yeah, my horror story is swapping out the, the proxy for kernel while driving down a freeway. 
Yeah, that that is one heck of a story. And it kind of goes back to like your ability to deal with like context switching. It's like you're happily driving on the freeway, talking about this, this, and that. Next thing you know, you know, you're deep into like Nginx configs. Yeah, and it was, I mean, it was really scary because at the time I had, I had paying customers and I'm like, oh my God, you know, I don't want to disappoint these people. They're paying me money. Like, oh my God, what am I going to do? So like, first thing I did was like, well, hell, I'm just going to increase the size of the box. I can deal with the actual problem later. And then when that didn't work, I was like, oh, now what? <laughs> Um, yeah. So yeah, it was it was scary, but I, I think that those kind of problems when you're running your own surface are uh, I consider them like growth moments. Like I learned a lot about how not to run a service from that. <laughs> yeah, and those are always kind of like the best lessons learned. Kind of you have to experience the problem yourself. Yeah, exactly. So like so now when something goes down at work or on kernel, like I don't get stressed. I just get to work. <laughs> Right. So you're also taking advantage of some of DigitalOcean's alerting, like the CPU and memory and disk usage stuff? Yeah, I do use that. Um, I actually realized I had a hole in my monitoring on DigitalOcean when one of my boxes started to um, have serious performance problems because it was running out of disk space. And I realized at that point I didn't have the disk space monitor set up. But yeah, I do use those monitors just to keep an eye on things. And I actually have Datadog as well. So I, yeah, you asked me if I had any like SaaS products. I actually have a lot of them and I just couldn't remember at the time. Yeah, it's okay. Now, when it comes to disk space, have you played around with using like the block storage or no? Uh, yeah, I actually used block storage on the uh, on the load testing service. So anytime um, someone creates a load test, it actually generates a Python locust file and then zips up some like Python code. I store that zip file on a uh, block storage instance. Uh, do you do you want to give like a TLDR and kind of what that allows you to do? Um, basically, if I ever want to expand my load testing service, like if I need to add more boxes, um, I can more easily share that data. Now you can't connect a block store to more than one box. But what I could do is set up like an NFS server and have the block store connect to that and then have the, you know, the other um, load testing services connect via NFS to the block to the block store. So it does allow me to like separate those concerns just a little bit and hopefully future proof. Right. So like putting NFS to the side, block storage is almost kind of like just having an external hard drive that you can connect to one instance at a time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So before, you know, you're talking about your awesome story of Nginx configs like on the run, uh, talking about lessons learned, like what are some of the best tips and lessons learned that you've discovered over the, over the last five years of developing this app? Oh, gosh. If you, I don't know, if you're not comfortable with one of your technologies, don't try and manage it yourself. Um, for the for the longest time, I did not manage I did not manage my Mongo instance because I didn't know enough about like Mongo, um, basically Mongo DevOps. Like I had no idea how to how to stop it from like eating all of my memory or getting like the replication set up correctly and like the arbiters and stuff. So I actually paid Compose to do that, um, and IBM ended up gobbling that company up and their quality kind of went downhill. Um, but when that, when that happened, I finally took the time to figure out how all that works. And then now I manage my own Mongo instances and it's fine. But I, I did the same thing with Redis when I first started using that. Um, what else? Like the load balancers, you know, DigitalOcean does that now. It's one less thing I have to worry about. 
Um, so that that's my biggest tip. Like, if you can pay for it, do it. Um, like, I, I've even gone as far as trying to figure out if I could get Kernel to work affordably on Heroku so I wouldn't have to manage any servers. Um, but at my traffic volume, that wasn't reasonable. Yeah. So if you're comfortable, would you be open to saying about how much you have to pay for DigitalOcean for all that stuff set up? Yeah. Um, my costs per month are around... So it, it, it bobbles around a little bit, but I think the minimum cost I would pay for kernel infrastructure is around $65 a month. Um, that can go up if a lot of people run a lot of load tests because, you know, they spin up droplets and then they're up for a while and then they get destroyed. So it, it depends on load testing volume as well, but it, it bobbles between like 65 and a hundred bucks a month. Yeah. That's not too shabby. And I, I guess just to recap, what is that? Two web servers, one load balancer, one Postgres database, one MongoDB database is Redis on its own server or? Yeah, so let's see. So I have two app servers which run Node, um, the analytics server, the uh, load testing server. I have the Redis server, so that's five. Um, and then the kernel blog also lives on a server, so that's six. I think like six, server, six servers and a load balancer. Yeah, and a little bit for the block storage as well. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Seems like a good setup. Yeah, it's. Um, I've, I've tried really hard to keep costs down just because I'm cheap. <laughs> uh, you know, if I don't have to pay a ton of money for something, why why, why do it? Yeah, definitely makes sense. And then it's like, you know, Heroku is a great service, but at the same time, it's like, are you prepared to spend 500 plus a month for it? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Like it would have, it would have like tripled or quadrupled my costs. And that would be just for the main kernel app servers. It's not including anything else. You know, and the, the analytics server has like, you know, table tables with like four or five million rows of data. And if you tried to like store that in Heroku Postgres, you would be paying out your ears for it. Yep, for sure. Um, so I guess kind of to wrap this up a little bit, uh, we talked about best tips, lessons learned. Have you made any mistakes in the past that you learned from besides, you know, maybe a little bit better monitoring? Um, hmm. I was trying trying to think about that a little bit. I can't think of any huge mistakes that I've made. Um, and, and I think that comes from like, I've, I've been a software engineer for a long time already. So I, I knew where not to mess up. Um, and I, if in hindsight, I probably should not have used Mongo as my data store. Like my, my, my schema is extremely relational. So it would have made a lot more sense to use a relational database. Um, but I was, I was trying to learn and Mongo was the, the right choice at the time. So I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sad about the choice, but I think I would have been better served with Postgres from the start. Right. So I'm not like super deep into the node ecosystem, but is Postgres support really good there or no? Yeah. It, it, it has first class support in the, in the node ecosystem, like tons of people use it for a ton of different things. So there's lots of great libraries out there. Nice. Yeah. I'll drop some in the show notes. So Jack, thanks so much for coming on the running in production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thanks, Nick. It's been great to chat with you. Do you want to share any links maybe to your site or Twitter or GitHub? Uh, sure. I think the, the only link I'd like to share is to kernel, uh, K-E-R-N-L dot U-S. So check it out if you have some time. Yeah, that threw me off with the missing E, just to be cool. Yes, <laughs> yep. You know, not the Linux kernel, just kernel. <laughs> right. Sounds good. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe 
using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.